I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Andrea Lawsey, a clinical herbalist and founder of Artemis Tea and Botanical. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Andrea Lawsey is the founder of Artemis Tea and Botanical and is a clinical herbalist. She's a PhD candidate working on a dissertation in critical plant studies, specifically focused on relationships between humans and the vegetal. Her studies of the interconnection between the non-human and human worlds have culminated in building Artemis. Andrea says, however, it is without a doubt the garden she plants and tends year after year that offers her the greatest insight and wisdom. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. I was really struck with something that you shared with me in which you said that for you, what is most important is helping people remember plants. And in so many ways, it feels to me so poetic, so poignant, and it it conjures, I think, something that perhaps feels um, noble about our human condition. And so I wanted to ask you, and this is maybe unfair to kind of start our conversation so broadly, but what do you mean by this? So when I say remember, um, it comes directly from my own experience. And, um, you know, growing up, I have always been fascinated with nature, but from a distance, you know, I've always felt very much the observer, Uh, did not know how exactly to interact, uh, loved it as, you know, an aesthetic Uh, something that I longed for, but I didn't know how to, I just didn't know how to contact it. I didn't know how to insert myself into that and feel I was a part of it. That persisted, you know, through high school, I suppose, probably into college. And, uh, and then there were, you know, several, several events in my life that slowly began breaking down that barrier a little bit, but the real, the real um, opportunity that you know the real the real thing that began to adjust my perspective and change my experience was when I started studying herbalism and actually um, utilizing herbs as as a as a healing element for my own physical and emotional needs. Going through some extraordinarily difficult times in my life, like I felt that um, at different points along the way, once I started u- using herbs. It would, <laughs> it would always be the addition of like one special herb to a formula that all of a sudden just broke something open inside of me. Like you literally feel it. Like you go from feeling your normal self to suddenly your, you know, your, your heart is just, you know, it just explodes open and, and there's emotion pouring out and there's energy coming in and there are realizations just, you know, clicking inside and it's life altering. In addition to those sorts of uh, experiences, they had several different times um, learning how to have a garden. Uh, you know, this was something, again, as an intellectual idea, oh my gosh, loved gardens, <laughs> great. But I never, ever really saw myself as the person who's out there 
planting, harvesting, sweating in the sun. Like, oh my God, really? No, thank you. I had allergies as a kid, you know, like there's just all kinds of things that, that uh, didn't entice me to that sort of lifestyle. So it was really, it took me by surprise when I realized, you know, after I started studying herbs um, and after I started ingesting them as medicine and learning from them from the inside out, I'm like, I really want to understand what this plant is all about. I, I, you know, I don't just want to take it mindlessly. Like I really want to know, like I plant this in my garden and I watch it all through like every stage of the season. What am I going to learn? What does it look like? What does it smell like? What's its growing cycle like? What kind of pests, you know, or, or other insects, you know, interact with it? Um, I mean, there's just, there's so much uh, to learn by growing these plants, you know, in your own habitat and, and, ha- and in, in, in growing a relationship with them that way. Yeah, so after a certain point um, in my herbal studies and in my studies about plants, um, I realized, uh, like, oh my God, I, I feel... I feel almost like an obsession, uh, like I, I, this absolute, utter, total compulsion to go outside and be in my garden and garden for hours and hours at all, in all kinds of weather. Like I, I was concerned about my plants. I wanted to be near them. I wanted to touch them and smell them and feel them, talk to them, hum to them, I, you know, anything. And it just, it's just this, 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 I, I have to, I must, I, you know, and letting them go uh, in the fall is difficult and saying goodbye, you know, but, um, you know, this is all new. That is not something that I always had. It was something that felt like, it felt like there was something in my DNA that one day, you know, the trigger, the trigger, the light switch was off and another day the light switch was on. It felt like there was something that, that there was deep inside of me that suddenly woke up and, after having experienced it and, you know, thought very deeply about it, you know, I started to think, you know, wow, if this happened to me through these, you know, very basic means, could this happen to other people? Does this happen to other people? I need to pay attention. You know, I need to start reading. And and as I was reading literature, um, I started looking for it and it's just everywhere. It's everywhere. So I really wanted to start exploring ways to make plants more accessible to people so that what isn't currently awake inside of them can have an opportunity to awaken and, and uh, that's, you know, something to, to flip that switch for others. I really do think that throughout human history, we've, you know, we've been in extraordinarily intimate relationship with the vegetal for millennia. We've evolved together. I, I am 100% convinced that that information's coded in us and, um, you know, we may not need it in our hard urban lifestyle, but it's there. Um, and I mean, and actually we do need it. We just don't realize it. When you talk about helping people remember plants and, and perhaps have that a similar epiphany, as it were, that you experienced, you're conjuring this sense that over time, humans had a more intimate relationship and awareness with and of plants. But recently somewhere we seem to have lost that connection what is some of that sort of historical connection that has inspired you from your reading of literature and and your study of uh, the the human experience with you know, mythologically or um ritually or biologically you know our existence with plants what's that sort of historical context well a lot of my reading and study 
uh, centers around 19th century um, into the 20th century. And, you know, certainly there's uh, tons of information coming from before that medieval culture, Western culture is, um, you know, rife with interesting cultural changes that, that also led to this development. But in terms of the 19th century, just this massive industrialization, um, but even before that, medicine, you know, the history of Western medicine has so much to play in this story. When, you know, allopathy is born, when in the medical world, uh, we move from an ideology of working with the body to uh, overcome disease, like the, the, the homeopathic is let's work with the body's natural systems to, to combat the disease versus let's send in something that obliterates that disease, you know, so rather than working with the body's own process, we're, we're sending in something else that, that, that bypasses our need to, to, uh, to work with that disease and ultimately shut it down. So Western medicine, both from uh, an ideological perspective, but also, you know, just, uh, you know, in order for Western medicine to succeed, it had to displace folk medicine, herbal medicine. And in order to do that, you know, it, it demonized it. Um, and this isn't to say that, you know, I don't believe in the wonders of modern Western medicine. Um, it's just to acknowledge the, you know, factual, uh, you know, history there in terms of, you know, herbalism has been demonized for centuries. Um, it's, you know, something that uh, Western culture has tried to make us fearful of, you know, the scary plants. And, you know, and rather than taking a, you know, an herbal treatment that has been utilized for literally centuries, that we literally have centuries worth of documented information about administering it to people. So rather than doing that, you know, we're being told to take medications that have been around for six months, nine months, or even two years, you know. So, um, so that definitely has something to do with it uh, in a very significant way. Um, but then, of course, you know, our lifestyles, living in an urban lifestyle where you know, a lot of us just, we don't have a big patch of, you know, lawn or, or a garden or plants other than, you know, those that we can cultivate inside. You know, so it's hard to have that, that contact, that tactile awareness of, of the vegetable around us. Hello, can't shake the simplest feeling beyond the ghost. We stand on the opposite shore. Hello, Ramona. I reach through mysterious ceilings, my only hope. I look for the things I don't know. The word that jumps into my mind is marijuana, and it may be a stealthy way for herbalists to kind of regain the ground that was lost to, you know, pharmaceutical industries. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and not only, you know, marijuana, but, you know, psilocybin, for example, and Michael Pollan, his new, you know, book on that, How to Change Your Mind, you know, does an absolutely wonderful job of helping represent the importance of you know, the vegetal in terms of opening the human mind and, and uh, helping humanity evolve historically. So I think we're ready for another 
evolution, but uh, you know, what role will, pan- will plants play in that? So a lot of that will boil down to culture, cultural perception and policy. And yeah. Would you talk a little bit more about the ways in which you're trying to encourage people to reacquaint themselves with sort of the vegetal world? You know, as I was doing my, my academic work, I kept running up against this, this question that philosophers posed and literary critics, po- you know, literary critics who are studying ecology and nature, um, eco-critics, um, this, this problem that they just kept coming up against every single time, which is how do we get people to care? Like, they'll talk about their own epiphanies, they'll talk about what brought on those epiphanies, and they'll talk about the need to create epiphanies in others. But it, it's all discourse, you know, it's all within the confines of discourse. And after a certain point, uh, you know, I just felt uh, that it's futile to keep containing this move this if we want to move forward if we want to evolve past we have to move beyond discourse into lived experience and action and embodiment right which is of course what all of the discourse is about you and at the same time academia uh, does just a tremendously good job of silencing folk thought uh you know it celebrates it on one hand but only science can uh you know legitimate uh, you know, a scholarly idea. <laughs> they just, you know, that, that clash, it's, uh, it's still alive and well. And so I'm, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking as I study herbalism more and more, I'm like, you know, there's, there are thousands of people living today who carry on a tradition of plant knowledge, uh, cultural plant knowledge. Why aren't we talking to them more? Why aren't we listening? Like, why aren't we learning from them how to hear plants, how to learn from plants? In uh, botany, uh, right now, that's uh, one of the cutting-edge uh, areas of interest is plant sentience, um, and there's all kinds of research and data going on about plant intelligence. It's fascinating. It's it's incredible. But again, we run up, run up into the limit of you know science can only take us so far. But if you go back to, you know these these cultures who have had people interacting on a daily basis in deeply deeply intimate way with plants for their their entire lives to discount what they have to say, to, to write it off as, uh, you know, anecdotal to me is, is just sad and, it, and it's limiting. So while I don't want to ignore science by any means, I'm fascinated by it. I want to stay abreast of it. I also don't want to limit myself by um, ignoring a really rich and vibrant and important collection of thought from people who live this life and who practice, you know, practice herbalism and, and, and teach people about plants. So again, yeah, it just, uh, you know, the research kept leading me back to herbalism um, as a practice rather than simply as uh, an intellectual pursuit. Herbalism, as you've mentioned, you know, it comes with so many tags. <laughs> there are a lot of people that get turned off by the term um, or who associate it with marijuana, right? You know, oh, you're an herbalist. <laughs> Where Do you have marijuana? Can I, you know, so, you know, but what is herbalism really about? You know, it's, it's about fostering, it's, an herbalist is a person that fosters the relationship between people and plants um, that keeps that bridge of connection alive, that grows that connection and helps other people establish it for themselves. Um, how to get people excited about plants? Well, sneakily, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, for me, tea was something that's just not looked at much. Um, it's something that's just so ubiquitous that we don't give it much thought. 
it's typically very boring. And most people, including myself, don't drink herbal tea for pleasure. <laughs> it's, you know, if I have a cold or I'm not feeling or if, if I have a stomach ache, you know, I'll drink an herbal or prior to Artemis, I, I didn't drink herbal tea. So I, I just continue to think about what the possibilities there were when a majority of the human population drinks tea on a regular basis every single day. There's already that established relationship, but what if, you know, but th this is a plant and it's only one plant, but what if they had the ability to make contact with, uh, you know, eventually hundreds of plants, you know, Artemis tea and botanical, we have over 150 different plant species that, that we work with uh, on a daily basis. And, you know, and so, so just, again, thinking about how we can incorporate so much diversity into a person's daily habit was exciting. Just close your eyes and let them rest. I know it's hard to fall asleep, but do your best. Because there's a place that I go to. When I want to hide from all the shades of blue Cause at times I think of leaving My mind takes me back to fall When the snow begins to sing at night to warm You mentioned over 150 herbs and botanicals and other elements from, from the natural world. So let me ask you to perhaps unpack, just um, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, unpack a few of your bags of tea, as it were. Uh, explain a little bit more about what goes into your, and this might be the wrong word, but the alchemy of how mm -hmm. you create a particular blend of tea for a particular purpose and what the specific ingredients, uh, you know, within those, uh, you know, formulations mean for the body and the mind? Yeah, that's a great question. And alchemy is the right term for sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's look at, we'll look at Einstein, for example. Um, Einstein is a tea for focus, for productivity focus. Um, it has a lot of other uh, wonderful uses but it's a, it's a nootropic tea. Um, this is a tea that actually helps the brain perform better. It utilizes uh, several herbs that have been used in Ayurvedic culture for thousands of years. Gatukola, uh, Brahmi, two of the, the premier ones. Um, so these are herbs that will help the blood retain oxygen better. Um, and they're also herbs that move things towards the brain. They help circulate the blood and the oxygen to the brain. A lot of times an herb, there's, there's something called the doctrine of signatures. If you look at a plant, uh, you, can, you can see certain leaf structures or uh, flower, fat flower forms, things that can give you an inkling actually into the functionality of the plant. The ginkgo leaf is kind of a fascinating one in terms of, you know, ways that, that it can remind us of, you know, the brain or the veining on it can show us that it's 
uh, premier circulatory herb. Also, the fact that the leaf structure looks like a lung, you know, so it, and it actually, it is uh, an herb that we utilize for lung health as well. Um, and that oxygenation, you know, of the blood. Um, so yeah, in concocting this, this formula, um, it was a very uh, interesting dance between, you know, what are, what are the most important herbs that we need to, to create the function that we need, but also there's this energetic component behind it. Like we want to send these herbs to this part of the body and we want to make sure that there's a stabilizing energy that grounds a person and doesn't just push all the energy up into the head space. We want to connect the head, the head, the consciousness to the heart. You know, there are herbs that actually do that, that help bring our energy into the heart center. Uh, rose hips is, you know, one example. Or ro and rose, rosemary that I have next to me both stimulates brain function, but also it speaks to the heart center. And so, yes, it's just this gentle uh, dance and alchemy. And, and to be perfectly honest, when I'm doing a blend, um, I usually wait for the, the moments where the, the uh, you know, particular plant steps forward. And a lot of herbalists will talk to you about things like this, but when you're formulating for a person, usually there are very specific herbs that will step forward in your mind or it'll just come to you in a, in a moment. And then you think, okay, this plant is just indicated to me in some fashion or another that they're the ones that needs to work with you. They've got, they've got the, you know, the, the healing capacity or, or what have you that that's right for your constitution and your needs right now. So then you build the formula around that herb or herbs that have presented. Is it intentional for you? Do you think about particular, as it were, ailments or needs that people have? Or do you wait for herbs to sort of suggest to you this is the sort of formula and equation they want to be a part of? Yeah, the answer is both. Um, absolutely both. You know, Anahata, uh, that's a new tea that we recently released. And, and that one felt so necessary for this particular moment in time. Anahata is the Vedic word for the heart, heart chakra. And, the, and, you know, and this is a teeth that uh, is full of nervines, but nervines particularly for the cir heart circulatory nervous system, the pericardium, you know, herbs that help release heart tension and uh, they have a softness to them. I wanted to make sure that what I utilized was had a, you know, a nourishing, gentle softness to it because we really don't need any more hard work thrown at us right now. <laughs> it's just really about the nourishing comfort of you know, letting these plants help us and interact with us in that way. And, you know, again, you know, they've evolved along next to us for so long and, and uh, people have been utilizing them for these reasons. And, you know, they're, they're all right here. Let's, let's use them. Let's, let's uh, benefit from uh, all of the wonderful uh, relief, you know, really relief and healing that, that we can. Did you foresee that 
to be a practical, practicing herbalist, you'd have to be an entrepreneur. No, not at first. Yeah, that's that's, that's an, an interesting question as well. I, yeah, you know, I mean, I started seeing people uh, individually. Uh, I started with the practice, Artemis Natural Healing, and I did feel limited by that because um, you can only see a few people at a time. Um, I did really feel like I wanted that impact to be broader, uh, you know, and how to do that. And a lot of herbalists, um, you know, entrepreneurs will start apothecaries, will do herbal, you know, tinctures and salves and, and things like that. But like I told you before, tea has been something that's so discounted. It's always kind of the aside or the afterthought. Well, you know, and part of it was practical too. Like I wanted to drink more herbal tea and I wanted to like it. And I just couldn't find that anywhere. I, I tried and tried, but, uh, you know, yogi tea doesn't do it for me. And traditional medicinals, they're great formulas, but it's not something that I would go to to comfort myself or to curl up with a book, uh, you know, and drink. And it's not something that I would necessarily offer someone when they came to my home as part of hospitality. Um, I just felt there was this big, wide gap. And so really for myself, selfishly, I started blending, you know, to, to give myself the, the pleasure of being able to drink botanical teas that I really loved. And it caught on, you know, the more I gave it to people, the more I realized, wow, that's not just me who wants this. There are a lot of people who feel similarly. You made a leap. You started um, the business. What's that like? I mentioned earlier that, you know, you have this kind of academic pedigree, this uh, expertise in plant law, the clinical study of, of herbs, and here you are now being a business person. And so I'm wondering about what you've learned being uh, an entrepreneur and, and how you've made the business a success and, and maybe what's failed along the way. Yeah. So that transition from academia to entrepreneur was an excruciating one. Like I fought, <laughs> I fought this hand in tooth, like uh, for a year and a half, probably after it started to occur to me that there's really something here. This is, you know, I can't just shut the door to it. So, you know, I just told myself, this will be a fun side project. This will be a great, you know, de-stressor. We can just do this on the side. and. Uh, you know, just really quickly, it, it occurred, you know, I, I realized like, I'm going to have to make a choice at some point. This is, this is getting big enough, fast enough that I just can't maintain both. Um, it needs too much time, too much attention. And, and I agonized and I agonized and I agonized. And, uh, you know, finally it was, you know, that basic question of, will I regret, will I regret not pursuing this possibility? Will I regret not opening that door fully? And I knew the answer was yes. If I, if I don't try this, if I don't, every, everything just felt like it was converging and pushing. Um, and I just couldn't, I couldn't resist that, that awareness. So yes, I think it did. You know, I started it with a sense of both exhilaration and loss. <laughs> um, and, you know, a feeling of, again, like that excitement, but also, uh, you know, alienation, like I'm, I'm detaching myself from something that I know that's so familiar to me. And I know so well, I don't, I don't know what anyone's going to think about this project as I do it. It seems so crazy. You know, really, it's been 
honest to goodness, uh, different women entrepreneurs along the way that have befriended me and say, you know, have said, I believe in you, I want to help and support you, um, who have really, truly enabled Artemis to be a success. What are some of the lessons that they imparted for you? Yeah, they, so much collaboration. It was more so than what I had experienced before. The tenacity that I saw other women uh, exhibiting, I thought that I was tenacious as a, as a teacher and an academic, but I realized it was something entirely different when you're free falling, you know, like that you have no idea where this is headed, when you're going to hit ground. Um, this is an experiment. And watching other women go through that and their, their just brutal honesty about their experiences was so refreshing. Everyone, you know, admits to their failures um, as much as they, you know, celebrate their successes together. And it's, uh, you know, it's a very beautiful thing. Um, looking at other, you know, women who are mothers um, who are trying to navigate the landscape of entrepreneurialism was eye-opening and beautiful as well. I think the biggest lesson, though, is learning that as an entrepreneur, this is a the, de- the departure for me is learning that I cannot do it alone. I absolutely cannot do it alone. And I tried. And that's the way that I've just kind of always done things. Um, but if, you know, if I want to be successful, this, this is a whole different situation. And I, I need other people to come in and fill in the gaps of where I'm not the expert. I'm an expert in this, this area, but in the world of entrepreneurialism, there are just so many other fields that I have to have uh, other people step into those roles and help Artemis succeed. So yeah, it's been a wonderful and difficult learning, uh, learning experience that way. But um, yeah, I'm really excited about uh, the new partner that I've, that I've been able to get to know recently. Her name's Sarah Kluth. She is just exquisite and brilliant. Um, a total, I don't know, gift from the gods who dropped out of the sky. <laughs> what does she bring uh, that kind of rounds out your your business? Yeah. So, you know, this, the, you know, the area of specialty that, that I bring to the table is, you know, the visionary, the, you know, the creative mind, you know, behind this, the language, the the images, the, you know, in, in the aesthetic, but Sarah is, you know, also, um, you know, has all kinds of, a, you know, rich aesthetic ideas too. But Sarah uh, has 20 years of experience in the specialty beverage industry. So she had been working very high up in Intelligentsia Coffee for a long time, um, among some other coffee industries. She's traveled all around the world. She's worked directly with growers for many years, establishing relationships she has a very intimate knowledge of of how the company runs at the operational level. It's guts. Um, she knows how to you know to make sure that our our sourcing remains consistent. She's also a uh, you know a professional accountant, so she you know brings a tremendous knowledge of you know finances to the company and just basically rounds out every major thing that I'm not, she is, and vice versa. So it's just this beautiful yin-yang dynamic that we have together that just really feels like this sense of completion. And then, of course, you know, there'll be other people that, you know, that we bring on that, you know, will help fully, you know, complete and bring this all together. But, you know, essentially, the essentials there that she brings with are just incredible. I completely get all of the benefits of having someone uh, like Sarah as part of the business. 
But at the same time, simultaneously, was there just a slight reluctance to let someone else in to your, your creation? Totally, totally. Mm. And really until the last month or so, I would say that was a big, a very, I was very conscious of how much I was struggling with that transition. And, you know, and just learning to always say us and we versus me and I, and learning the demarcations like, <laughs> well, you know, Artemis has always been me. What does it mean for Artemis to be us? And Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, it's it's been a it's been a tremendous emotional experience. Um, you know, and the beauty of it though is that she and I have so much in common that she just feels like the most wonderful friend. And it, and and it's been, I think, me learning slowly. You know, just more about her and gaining trust and um, just slowly sinking into this new rhythm uh you know with another person but but yeah totally scary (laughs) totally scary the sky is blue the sun is high sitting here on my own i think of you Are there any other kind of surprises that you've encountered or or lessons that you've learned over this period of time that you've been an entrepreneur? Gosh, there are too many to count. (laughs) Um, You know, just gosh, from the very basic, how should I design my product page? How should I represent this on this Instagram post? How do I make the best Instagram story? How do I create an Instagram store or, you know, like, I'm still figuring that out. Um, I mean, just either the, just these really fundamental basic things that I have to teach myself, all, all of them I have to teach myself. Um, getting to, uh, you know, getting to know and to connect with the small business community. Um, this is an entirely new world for me. And so that's fascinating. And I just always feel that I'm an observer and I'm learning and listening and trying to absorb as much as possible from, you know, all these other people who, either have a lot more experience or who are, you know, kind of in a similar place to me who are also asking a lot of questions and just trying so hard to learn. And, you know, and with tea, um, you know, this isn't the sort of industry where there are a whole, at least locally here, there aren't a whole lot of other tea shops that I could learn from that I could have as mentors per se, you know, how does one run a tea company? How do you source? Where do you go to buy your tea? How do you like just, just really fundamental things. How do I go about getting growers for the botanicals? Well, and then once they grow for me, how are we going to get 
uh, fresh product turned into dry product? And what sort of a scenario do we need to set up in order to allow our farmers to bring in their fresh herbs and we dry them and process them? Or do we, you know, ask our herbalists to do that on site? Well, if we ask them to do that on site, will they have to build a start? You know, there's just all of these really endless small small details that you're you're learning along the way and, and problem solving is just constant. So yeah, I've never I don't I don't know if I've really ever been learning so many different things as rapidly as I am at this point in my life. So yeah, it's fascinating and, and terrifying that uh, you know, like I'm always coming up against a wall of something that like, oh, I thought I knew all of these things, but I just now I'm realizing that I have all of these other things that I need to learn. How do you source the ingredients? I mean, I'm fascinated by all of those problems. I mean, I'm, I want to ask how you solve them. So how do you source your ingredients and how do you then turn them into a product that, you know, I can go buy and drink? Right. So I'm constantly hunting and researching, uh, you know, in terms of premium quality organic teas that are sourced ethically. And when I say teas, I'm talking about the actual Camilla sinensis plant, you know, the oolongs, whites, greens, blacks, etc. Um, where does one go about starting this? Well, fortunately, I uh, established this wonderful relationship with uh, another female owner and entrepreneur in Washington, D.C. when I was there a couple of years ago, uh, the owner of Teaism. This uh, lovely woman and her daughter now run Teaism, and they have several, several shops uh, in the Washington area, one on Capitol Hill. Like they're just, they're really thriving and successful. And they were extraordinary in answering all kinds of questions that I put to them. Um, this would probably be the one situation where I felt comfortable going to another female, you know, entrepreneur and, and just asking really basic questions. Where do you get your tea? Who would you, you know, who, where, where should I start? And I had already started by just mining data off of, you know, global expo websites. Like who are the main distributors? Who should I begin calling? Who are, who are the big players in this industry? And then whittling it down from there. But um, this mentor at Teaism uh, gave me some names of some different individuals that are smaller tea importers and much more specialty oriented. And so I was able to find, uh, you know, an importer that I could have a very, close relationship with and she's the one it's a woman which I love she's based in California and she's the one who goes every single year and travels to the different estates uh tea estates and plantations where she's picking out which crops are going to be the ones that she's going to offer um and I get all of that information via her directly so it's beautiful to be able to at least at this stage of the game uh, know that the person I'm working with has a very fundamentally intimate relationship with the product that she is um, is bringing to the market. That was a lovely, a lovely find. And then, and then along the way, just finding other specialty, um, you know, tea importers uh, again who are smaller, who who have established these very intimate connections with the growers, um, and and just it just takes time. It just takes time and digging. Um, with local growers, it's, it's nice being an herbalist because I have a lot of close connections and friends in that world um, who are trying to grow things on their own. And so that feels a lot easier. The only problem there is just uh, scale. You know, Artemis is already growing enough that, you know, we need a lot of herb. So the local growing piece is just this, this very slow, uh, the slowly developing thing that Artemis really hopes to 
help these herbalists expand faster. Um, we want to create the demand that will enable them to expand their, their farming uh, more and more quickly. Has the demand really accelerated? Is, is that part of your experience with the business over the last few years? I don't know if the demand has accelerated so much as uh, word of our existence just continues to get out there. I mean, I think it really boils down to that. Now, nationally, interest in herbs has exploded in the last five years. And that does pose, you know, some difficulties in our ability to source, you know, so if, uh, you know, Oprah runs a special segment and she starts talking about the wonders of Gatu Cola, for example, then her audience <laughs> runs out and purchases a bunch of Gatu Cola. And right now the herbal market still isn't as robust as it, as it could be in part because the U.S. isn't a major grower yet. Um, up in the Pacific Northwest, yes, uh, we, we do grow a lot of herbs domestically, and that is Artemis sources a lot of our herbs from the, the Pacific Northwest, but a lot of our herbs are still coming from places all around the world because uh, other countries see the profitability of growing perennial plants uh, in a way that the American agricultural system does not yet. So I guess it's a double-edged sword, right? You know, the increased demand will eventually show growers what's possible, but in the short term, it can make sourcing tricky. I just have to be constantly watching for, you know, COVID hit. I was worried about echinacea. Um, will I have a steady stream of echinacea and elderberry? Um, for a while, you couldn't find them. They just disappeared almost overnight, and I had to beg, beg and plead with suppliers, you know, can I have, did you have anything set aside? Can I have a backward? Just, you know, trying to manage all that is, uh, is intense. Um, but again, you know, it just, it's, it's more information too in, in um, trying to partner with local growers who can begin to supply more and more of, of uh, what we need domestically. How are you different? How have you changed? Are you a different herbalist now you've been in business with tea? I have so much more self-confidence than I think I ever did. I never really considered myself lacking, but I learned, I learned what it really does mean to have courage, I think, after walking, starting down this path, you know, to tell you how many times a month that, you know, it goes through my head, like, oh my God, is this worth it? Is this, can I, can I keep this? And then COVID, you know, COVID and every, uh, every curveball that is thrown. Um, yeah, it's a tremendous, it's a tremendous weight, but the joy uh, that I, <laughs> the, the notes, the, the memos, the, the comments that I get from our customers who have tried the teas and it's just this ebullience and truly like ebullient joy and gratitude. And it blows me away. I'm, I'm so humbled by it, Stuart. And just 
and I shouldn't be baffled by it, but I am. Even though this is what exactly what I set out to do, it, it still floors me that it's happening. And um, yeah, I'm not going to lie. Like that is a huge motivating factor for me. This just that reaffirms that, yeah, you keep putting one step in your one foot in front of the other and you keep going. And, and again, looking around at, you know, the other people in this, in, in the small business world who are doing exactly the same thing and we're all cheering each other on. you like, just, just keep at it. Just keep at it. Stay focused, stay focused to the mission, keep, keep the vision strong. And, and really, yeah, that, that is what I've been doing. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely feel that I'm learning and growing more as a person now than, than I think I have been in the last 10 years, truly. In the same way that people talk about wine and they think often in terms of years and vintages, is there anything you would say about herbs and uh, specifically with your teas that we might regard as this is the vintage for 2020? The vintage for 2020. So I would place the specialty maybe uh, for 2020 on a new blend I just released called Oracle. Um, but to speak specifically real quick to the wine parallel uh yes there's a there you know wine people are generally more uh, more amenable to tea and they're generally more uh likely to drink tea than they are to drink coffee um because of that nuance there is there is tremendous nuance in tea and the more you learn about it uh it, it's one of those rat holes again <laughs> you like the more you learn the more you realize you don't know and it is a very extensive uh field so right uh the weather patterns affect a plant's taste and growth uh, tremendously. So because we work in blends so much, what I like to do is tease out the, this, the specialty, like Oracle, for example, um, has one really beautiful and unique goju leaf that is processed by hand as if it were a tea leaf. So it's an herb that has been processed as, as we would process, uh, you know, green tea. So it, it refines, it refines this herb in a way that's, that's really utterly unique and tantalizing to me, but it brings out the terroir of that plant. You know, other examples might be the quality of, you know, golden ginkgo leaf, for example, in Einstein. Um, some years you're going to notice a richness and hue to it that you're not going to notice the year prior to it. Um, calendula flower. Another, it's a really easy one when you're looking at a tea, but there are certain harvests that are just, you know, that you could tell that that plant had a higher quality of moisture than, you know, maybe a crop previous did. So, so yeah, if you're attentive to it, it's endless and it's there. Um, you know, somebody who's drinking uh, Einstein every single day, they are going to notice these fine nuances as the season changes that come from time to time because some of the herbs that we're sourcing, um, yeah, it, it depends on, you know, the, the weather and, and so forth of the estates that they're coming from. So yeah, I, I, I love the connection with, with wine and terroir absolutely makes a difference, um, especially in tea. You can taste the minerality, for example. You can taste the, yeah, you can taste the rock. You can taste the, um, you know, how much uh, mist, you know, might have been present for certain green teas. Yeah, so equally fascinating.
My guest today has been Andrea Lawsey, clinical herbalist and founder of Artemis Tea and Botanical. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Stuart. I want to be napping. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.